Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. What's the haps, y'all? What is the haps? The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, even though it's summertime. Grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. <laughs> what about the chomp chomp? Chomp chomp. <laughs> I totally forgot. <laughs> you forgot? I done did. This is episode 83. Whoa! 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 Where were you in 1983, Scott? Uh, I was living in East Vancouver. I was nine, enjoying my life in East Van, you know, doing what you do. There you wa- go. Wandering. Living with the pops? Uh, living with my mom, primarily. There you go. L- yep. On with the show. This week's show contains graphic descriptions of the events and facts surrounding a brutal double murder. Great. This week we're off to New Brunswick in a typically quiet village of 2,300 people called Minto. Oh. 50 kilometers east of Fredericton in Sunbury County. Early on, coal mining drove the Minto economy via the railroad since removed. Hmm. 2,300 as a teeny tiny little town. Little, yeah. It's a village. Yeah. The village was rocked by the events occurring in April 2005 when a grisly murder scene was discovered at 358 Slope Road. Residents Fred Fulton, 74, known for his love of playing and listening to country music, and his kind wife, Veronica, or Verna DeCary, lay dead, butchered in their small rural home. Oh, it's always odd, uh, elderly individuals murdered. It's, it's just, it's an odd... Like, how can you be angry at, at elderly? Well, you're going to hear how. Yeah. The village got its second blow when it became clear that one of their own, a 22-year-old neighbor of Fred and Verna's, was sought as a person of interest in the murders. He was on the run. Hmm, so a neighbor. Yes. This is the story of the Minto murders, Verna DeCary and Fred Fulton. 
Much of the following comes directly from court documents. Debbie Mowat, Fred's daughter, wanted to invite he and Verna over to her place for a visit on Sunday, April 24, 2005. She called them that afternoon but got no answer. The next day she tried to contact the older couple again and her calls went unanswered. When she tried calling on Tuesday, April 26th and there was still no answer, Debbie was extremely concerned that something was wrong. It was time to go and knock on the door, if only to make herself feel better. At around 3 p.m. when Debbie Mowat arrived, she noticed that Fred's car was not in the driveway in its usual spot. It wasn't there at all. Debbie had been there playing cards with the couple on Friday only four days earlier. Fred and Verna had not mentioned that they'd been planning any kind of getaway that week. It was odd for them to have been out of contact for this long or not to have let anybody know that they were leaving. Debbie walked around to the back door of the cozy two-bedroom bungalow. She made her way up the back steps toward the screen porch and saw the door was slightly ajar. Entering the mudroom, Debbie noted bottles scattered about the typically well-ordered room, but also, and more ominously, were what appeared to be many bloodstains as well. As Debbie entered the kitchen, she was met with a horrible sight that no one, let alone a loving daughter, should ever have to witness. There laying in front of the washer and dryer was what Debbie assumed by its size and shape to be the decapitated body of her father, Fred Fulton. Debbie's concern turned to Verna. She was not in the kitchen nor in the living area. Debbie started down the hallway toward the bedroom but stopped, frightened of what she might find, or that whoever had done this was still in the house. Debbie was screaming for help as she came out of the house, which brought a neighbor, Paul LeBlanc, who lived right across the street to investigate after calling 911. Debbie was frantic, but managed to tell LeBlanc that she'd seen her father's body lying in a pool of blood on the kitchen floor. She was also screaming that someone had, quote, stolen his head. Holy crackers. Uh, anytime decapitation is involved, there's, there's some intense anger. A single constable, Philip Brannan, from the Minto detachment of the RCMP was first on the scene. Dispatch had prepped him for at least one homicide involving decapitation. Debbie Mowat yelled to Brandon and pointed at the house as he pulled up. They took my father's head, she said. I don't know how, I don't know how one could prepare themselves for that, but uh, wow. Yeah, like what went through this cop's mind at that point? I guess it's just a continuous acknowledgement of, okay, be ready. Here's what you're going to see. Yep. Be ready. Yep. Here's what you're going to, like, just constantly reaffirming. Also, also, as I mentioned earlier, is the guy still in the house? Yeah, yeah. If and is there anybody else, and what will I be seeing there? Yep. Yeah. Constable Brandon went into the house the same way Debbie had, also noting what appeared to be blood stains in the messy mudroom. Brandon saw a decapitated male body lying on his back clad only in undershorts. There was blood all over the body and surrounding area. A blood-soaked blanket covered a bit of the man's legs. Unable to find the man's head after a cursory search, Constable Brandon decided that he should lock down the scene so as not to spoil evidence and went back outside to a traumatized Debbie Mowat. The second RCMP officer on the scene was Constable Peter Campbell. He arrived as Brannon was learning that there was another resident of the home, as yet unaccounted for, Veronica or Verna 
to carry. As Brennan gathered information outside, Constable Campbell entered the bungalow and made his way carefully down the hall to the bedroom of the home. Sure enough, there in the master bedroom was the body of an older female, later identified as Verna DeCary. She was lying on her right side in a pool of blood. She was wearing a blood-soaked nightgown. The scene was a gory one even for the most seasoned officers. As Campbell was leaving the residence to await the arrival of the IDEN team, he noticed a military-style dagger laying on the floor of the living room. Oh, man. This is an intense start. Yeah. This is some brutal, brutal uh, slaying. A, like I mentioned off the top, a lot of this comes from court documents, so these are facts that have been entered into evidence. Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh, oh, yeah, I'm just trying to put myself in the officer's shoes and walking into this scene and yeah. trying to remain calm, trying mm-hmm. to remain focused. and uh, Especially in such a small place. You don't expect yes. to see such a brutal crime. I'm sure they've seen suicides. Yep. I'm sure they've seen, you know, a murder. Yep. Or some, but some, never some, something like this. Some violent assaults and whatnot. Yeah. But like a decapitation. Mm-hmm. Again, like there's just so much anger involved to do that. Yeah. And so it, it and to to see it, to walk in and to see a body with no head is like that's a, I can't imagine ever being able to fully process that. Yeah. Well, and especially Fred's daughter. Oh my Debbie god. Had to see that as well. Yeah, at least as an officer, you are trained in how to remain calm yeah. in these situations as a family member. Oh my god, I would just be I'm hoping she gets some treatment for PTSD oh at my. some point or some victim yeah, services. Yeah, absolutely. Campbell informed Debbie, Paula Blanc, Constable Brennan and the small crowd of neighbors that had gathered there that there was indeed another body in the house that matched a description given of Verna. Hmm. Debbie also mentioned that Fred's red Ford Taurus was missing. Perhaps if cops could find that, they'd find the killer of this well-respected and much-loved couple. A be on the lookout was put out for the car. Yeah, so again, small town and very uh, uh, noticeable car, red. So hopefully, I mean, depending on how long there was between the crime and when they were found, hopefully he's not too far. Mm. And uh, that car gets noticed. RCMP asked who might do such a thing. Right away, the name of Gregory Allen Dupre was on most people's lips. Oh. Gregory Dupre spent many weekends in the travel trailer right next door to the Fulton home on his grandparents' property. Hmm. There had been an ongoing property dispute between Fred Fulton and Gregory Dupre's grandfather, Adolf Dupre. In August of 2004, Gregory Dupre had become involved and threatened Fred Fulton with a knife. Mm. After that, Fulton had become fearful of the younger man and had to take sleeping pills just to get some rest at night. Oh, jeez, must have been quite scared then. Gregory Allen Dupre was charged and convicted of threatening with a weapon and uttering threats. Mm. He was due to be sentenced for those crimes the day before the bodies of Fred and Verna were found. Oh, there we go. Gregory Dupre was missing, too. No one had seen him for a couple of days, either. Mm-hmm. The bolo was updated to include a description of Dupre, and the manhunt was on. Yeah, I mean, that all just makes sense. In the meantime, the RCMP forensics team began the meticulous task of gathering evidence from the crime scene, 
Quickly, Fred Fulton's head was discovered. It was still in the kitchen, only feet from his body, but inside a pillowcase under the kitchen table. <sighs> Neighbors and relatives were canvassed. The last time anyone had seen either of the couple was when a neighbor spoke to Fred on the evening of April 23, 2005. Fred was practicing at playing horseshoes when the neighbor spoke with him. Oh. The neighbor noticed Fred's car was missing the next morning around 8 a.m. and had not returned since. Hmm. Okay. Fred Fulton's grandson, Fred Mowat, backed up this timeline saying he'd spent time with his grandfather playing music and having a few drinks until 6.45 on the evening of 23rd of April. Moet had tried to call his granddad on the 24th, but had received no answer. So lots of, lots of um, information quickly to help narrow down some timelines here. Yes. The grandson did notice Gregory Allen Dupre at some point in the yard near his grandfather Adolf's trailer and watched him go into Adolf's house. Everyone was well aware about what had gone on between Gregory and Fred. Obviously, Dupre was not well liked by his neighbors or the rest of their family. Yeah. Fred Fulton's car was found near a gravel pit on April 27, 2005, almost 125 kilometers southwest of Minto, hmm. and near the road leading towards St. Stephen, New Brunswick, a town that sits on the border with the state of Maine. Okay. On hearing of the discovery of the vehicle and its location, a woman came forward claiming she and her husband had noticed the Taurus parked at an odd angle with its lights off when they were returning to St. Stephen from Fredericton on the night of April 24th. As the pair drove by, they noticed a small, slight person, quote, wrapping something. They were unable to verify whether or not this was Gregory Dupre, as they didn't get a good look at the person. But Dupre was thin and only five feet tall. Oh. A fish plant worker on his way home from a late night shift picked up a hitchhiker at 2.30 a.m. on April 25, 2005. This was along Route 3, about five kilometers closer to St. Stephen. The hitchhiker had been carrying a motorcycle helmet and had a hatchet and a chainsaw attached to his backpack. There are some cojones on that driver for picking up a 2.30 a.m. hitchhiker with a hatchet and chainsaw. Yes. <laughs> but, I don't know. There's I did, lots the, of woodsy people around yeah, New Brunswick. But for yes. sure. There's a, you know, it's a different feel in, in, in small towns, in small uh, communities and stuff, but still hatchet chainsaw the driver remembered the man was small about five feet tall but other than that he didn't recall much else the driver dropped off the man after four to five miles as he was turning north and the hitchhiker was going to saint stephen the man said quote they had a short conversation but then the hitchhiker became difficult to understand oh interesting on his way toward the border crossing in saint stephen a trucker hauling a load of lumber toward Maine spotted a man walking along the highway, this is number three, between 5.30 a.m. and 6.30 a.m. Hmm. He noted the man had a strange haircut, a strip of long dark hair in the middle, and bald on the sides. The trucker later positively ID'd Gregory Allen Dupre as the person he'd seen. Yeah, so that that's the hair, pretty much the hairstyle of a, a young Glenn Danzig. Yeah. So it's it's something that is absolutely stands out, not yeah. common, and easy to recognize. 
Another man on his way to St. Stephen after delivering papers picked up a hitchhiker at 6.30 a.m. So we're seeing the entire timeline. Yeah. The hitchhiker was, quote, wearing a dark brown jacket and a full-face motorcycle helmet. He was wearing the helmet? Apparently. He must have taken it off because the man said he had a mohawk haircut and sat in the backseat of the car. (sighs) The driver also remarked that the short young man, quote, had a green chainsaw and a backpack with a long sword and a tomahawk. So he had a sword as well. The hitchhiker had told the driver he was meeting a man who was giving him a job in the lumber industry. So, again, here's this guy picked up. And now we know he has a sword. If I see somebody with a sword and a chainsaw and a hatchet wearing a full-faced motorcycle helmet... And he was also wearing, like, combat pants and stuff like that. I'd definitely ask him if he needs a ride. No, I'm not picking that Definitely. Well, I mean, swords are very common in the lumber industry. And they're also very common in the Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah. And but this I'm, is not that. That's how, that's how, you know, sometimes that's the fun way to ho- chop down a tree. Use or a sword. F- feudal Japan. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I'm amazed at how, like... Two people have picked up this fella. Two have picked him up, yeah. Yeah. Sword, hatchet, chainsaw. Upon arriving in St. Stephen 30 minutes later, the young man, later ID'd as Prey, asked about a payphone to use that was away from people. <laughs> the driver dropped Prey off at a nearby restaurant with a payphone and drove off. Prey was then seen again by the owner of a furniture store in downtown St. Stephen between 8.15 and 8.45. The man was prepping to open his shop. The strange-looking little man with the odd haircut was wearing a poncho, carrying a chainsaw, and walking down the street toward the U.S. border. Prey ducked into an alley beside the furniture store. The store owner opened the door, leading to the alley behind his shop moments later. He was taking out the trash. Prey was still in the alley and the store owner saw him put a pair of pants into a shopping cart in the alley. I, I don't even, like, this is bizarre. Days later, when he saw Prey on the news, he called RCMP to report seeing the fugitive to the cops, and they took the pants from the cart into evidence. <sighs> Gregory Allen Prey arrived at the U.S.-Canadian border crossing at Calais, Maine, soon after the last time he was spotted in St. Stephen. Prey was detained for a time by U.S. customs officials due to the weapons he was carrying. Oh my god, he tried to get those across the border? Yeah. He had brass knuckles, a homemade sword, a hatchet, pepper spray, a knife, and a chainsaw that appeared to be bloodstained. This is all so bloody fascinating and bizarre. Like, um, I, I don't know where it's going. You can't, like, if you're trying to flee... Uh, a violent murder that you have committed you you have to know trying to cross the border with a bloody chainsaw brass knuckles a knife a homemade sword like you're going to be stopped well (sighs) he was stopped yeah from a globe and mail article quote u.s border authorities took the weapons and fingerprinted mr Prey, a naturalized u.s citizen oh they let him into the country even though he told them he was a marine sniper and an assassin with 700 kills to his credit, end quote. Now, did you say they let him in? Yep. Well, I've watched, like, Border Patrol on TV. They seem to do a much better <laughs> job at vetting than what we're seeing here. 
Customs officials had even contacted the RCMP about the strange little man making all the wacky claims. The RCMP had no reasons for U.S. Customs to hold him, not yet. After only a 10-minute delay, Gregory Allen Desprez freely walked into the USA a full day prior to the discovery of the bodies of Fred Fulton and Verna DeCary back in Minto, New Brunswick. Dear shit, I'm just so perplexed. When called to task, U.S. Customs officials said they couldn't hold somebody, quote, just because they were weird. Desprez was a U.S. citizen, after all. Uh, okay, well, I don't think... It wasn't just that he's weird. He was lying to them. Sure, but... Like saying you're a, uh, a marine sniper and an assassin with 700 kills to your credit? Yep. They can hold you based on, hmm, I think this guy's lying. Yeah, and again... To get across the border. And again, bloody chainsaw. Chainsaw with blood on it, sword, knife, brass, and all of these things can make you stop and say, so I'm a bit concerned that you're coming into this country for reasons other than what you're stating. We're going to... Oh, But he was a U.S. citizen, so they I, let him in. I get that. After the discovery of Fred and Verna, on a hunch, RCMP contacted authorities at the border and in Desprez's home state of Massachusetts. A dispatcher in Massachusetts who noticed the state driver's license the RCMP had on file for Desprez didn't match any in the system. It was missing a number or letter, so the dispatcher tried a few and got a hit. There was Desprez's Massachusetts address. He was picked up late, on the same day as the bodies had been discovered. The address really didn't make a difference, though, and here's why. From a CBC article on June 8, 2005, after clearing the border, Desprez hitchhiked to southern Massachusetts, where a state trooper saw him wandering along the side of the highway. He was arrested after a routine check for outstanding warrants revealed that he hadn't shown up for the sentencing hearing. Hmm. Okay. So well, there you go. Can they not check for warrants and stuff at the border, just out of curiosity? They can. But it was he was crossing on the morning of, so he hadn't missed his court date yet. Uh, okay. Yeah. So it was just hours. Oh, that same day. Okay. Yeah. It was the same day that he was supposed mm. to be sentenced. Yeah. Okay. He had crossed the border, but he had no warrant out because at he that moment, yeah, yeah, he yep. hadn't missed his court yet. Yeah, it makes sense. Desprez being in the U.S. complicated things, obviously. Yep. Now the legal wrangling had to extradite a U.S. citizen for two homicides in Canada. A mugshot of wide-eyed Gregory Allen Desprez and his weird hairdo was taken by Massachusetts authorities, and it's chilling. Mm -hmm. It's even showed up as a strange graffiti stencil in Montreal, according to a photo on Wikipedia. Oh. And we'll post the photos on uh, darkpoutine.com. It's worth checking out. It'll give you chills. On September 15, 2005, nearly five months after Fred and Verna were murdered, their alleged killer was extradited back to Canada on the charges of first-degree murder times two. Hmm. The hearings went smoothly. Part of the evidence given was that blood found on Gregory Desprez's clothes matched that of Fred Fulton. Canadian prosecutors were now ready to go, but as we know, the wheels of justice turn frustratingly slow. Yep. Not to mention this case would need to be tried twice before it's resolved. We'll get into more evidence and the two trials after a break. Woo!
Desprez's trial was scheduled to begin on September 5, 2006, but it was delayed when Desprez fired his lawyer. To get another attorney up to speed would take some time, so the trial date was pushed to January 8, 2007. Hmm. Desprez was pleading not guilty. Justice Judy Clendenning was presiding over the bench trial. That means no jury, only the judge decides the case based on the evidence. Yep. The prosecution began presenting its case. On April 29, 2005, Dr. Ken Obenson, a pathologist, had conducted the autopsies of Fred and Verna. Here's some of his testimony about the state of Verna DeCary's body taken directly from court documents. Uh, Quote, he testified there were 30 injuries on the body of Verna de Carey, four of which were particularly significant. These included deep stab wounds to her left face, upper neck, 1.5 to 3.5 centimeters in length, and deep stab wounds to her lower anterior neck, 1 to 3 centimeters in length, and 0.5 to 1.8 centimeters wide. So these are big gashes. Mm-hmm. The other two significant injuries were in the chest area, and caused punctures to her lungs. Dr. Obenson testified that 27 of the injuries were uh, sharp force injuries inflicted by a sharp metal instrument. In his opinion, the cause of Ms. DeCary's death was multiple sharp force injuries causing massive blood loss, resulting in the heart ceasing to function. End quote. That is sounds painful and not immediate like oh god 30 wounds and 27 are sharp force so you think the others are him fighting with her yeah yeah and it can take a while i think for one to to bleed out to a point where the heart heart stops working so is the lungs are punctured you immediately get what's called a sucking chest wound i can't remember the exact name mm -hmm, for it but mm -hmm. It's not going to take a long time, but it's very violent. Yeah. yeah. Oh, poor lady. Obenson shared his findings in Fred Fulton's death, also from court documents. Quote, In addition to being decapitated, Mr. Fulton had 31 injuries, most of which were sharp force injuries, inflicted by a sharp metal instrument. Two of the more significant ones were in the chest area and had punctured his lungs while a third perforated his diaphragm and pericardium. He also found a number of defensive injuries on Mr. Fulton's thighs, toes, and fingers. In his opinion, Mr. Fulton's death was caused by multiple sharp force injuries and, of course, the decapitation, end quote. (sighs) Yeah, again, decapitation. There's just immense anger involved in doing something that that's unless there's just i'm trying to remove some some evidence it's typically an act of absolute hatred and anger yeah rcmp staff sergeant alan richard supervisor of the forensic ident team and a 29 year veteran of the force testified about the blood evidence found at 358 slope road it paints a chilling picture of a brutal attack from court documents one A person with wet blood on the bottom of their shoes walked through the residence and back porch. Two, a person whose bare feet were stained wet with blood, presumably Mr. Fulton, moved about the living room, kitchen, and bathroom. Three, Mr. Fulton passively bled on the porch while moving about between the screen door and the pool of blood by the displaced chair. Mr. Fulton was then dragged across the floor of the porch into the residence. Four, The partial footwear impression in the blood located beside the left foot of Mr. Fulton was deposited on the floor prior to the comforter being placed as found, so the thing over his legs. Mm -hmm. 
Five, the partially concealed wipe and footwear impression was located on the kitchen floor between Mr. Fulton and the dryer is consistent with a shoe sliding on the floor laterally toward Mr. Fulton while a pre-existing swipe transfer of blood was still wet and before the projected blood on the floor had completely dried. And chilling to me is the next one. Mr. Fulton, this is number six, Mr. Fulton, while actively bleeding, was at one time sitting on the bathroom floor with his blood-soaked back area in contact with the door, which would have been partially open. While seated, Mr. Fulton was moving about through the blood stains located on the floor. So he <sighs> essentially tried to hold the bathroom door closed unsuccessfully, yeah. attempting yeah. to save his own life. Oh, God. And finally, number seven, the blood stain patterns at the crime scene are consistent that Miss DeCary did not leave the master bedroom after she received the bloodletting injuries. So, like I said, I think it was over for her after the attack was over. This is horrific. So, what we see here is this guy and Mr. Fulton are running about the house. Yeah, I mean... And he, he's trying to get away from him, yeah, perhaps. And, yeah, and I believe there was a point when he was on the patio? Bled on the patio, I believe? The porch, yeah, patio porch. <laughs> okay, pee involved. It's fairly simple, but like so. <sighs> yeah, they were like in and out of the house and all kinds of stuff going on. Oh, and, wow. and the, the knife was found in the living room, but it just, you know, all this, the guy's slipping around and the blood that he's, oh. the bloody mess that he's created, it's awful. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is terrible. The evidence placing Gregory Allen Dupre at the scene was damning. The boots Dupre was wearing matched bloody footprints left at the crime scene. The cuts and wear to the bottom of Dupre's footwear were distinctive. In fact, regarding one in particular, quote, the probability that a different boot made the unknown impression was 1 in 638 trillion. Oh, wow. Okay. There was DNA evidence, too. Gregory Dupre's clothes gave him away. Staff Sergeant Richard presented into evidence, quote, the green flak jacket the pair of work leather gloves, the pair of black leather boots, the blue hooded sweatshirt, and the pair of blue pants which were seized from Mr. Dupre. Oh, a lot of damning evidence. From court documents, quote, an object or a person bearing the wet blood of Mr. Fulton made contact with the left front bottom area of the flak jacket. The front area of the flak jacket was facing the blood source of Mr. Fulton when it was affected by a measure of force. So splatter evidence mm -hmm. on it was splashback onto yep. him yeah the dorsal aspect of the left glove was in contact with an object or person bearing the wet blood of mr fulton and the blue hooded sweatshirt was in contact with an object or person bearing the blood of mr fulton hmm. end quote yeah lots of blood evidence lots and lots of evidence against this guy yeah the Crown brought others in to testify, establishing the conflict between Gregory Allen Dupre and Fred Fulton, as well as those who'd last seen Fred and Vernal alive, and the people who'd seen Dupre as he made his way to the U.S. after the crime. Mm -hmm. Something was up at the defense table, though. There were problems as the defense began their efforts to present their side. Oh, interesting. Dupre had become increasingly difficult for his new attorney to deal with, arguing often. On February 1st, 2007, Dupre's condition degenerated to the point of his screaming at his lawyer. Oh. Dupre wanted him fired as he was, quote, accusing him 
of working for al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. What the shit? A request was made for Dupre to be sent for psychological evaluation. The judge agreed to the request, and the trial ended pending the findings. Mm -hmm. Forensic psychiatrist Dr. Scott Terrio's diagnosis was schizophrenia, paranoid subtype with antisocial personality traits. Terrio's report was interesting. I bet. Let's hear this. Quote, in interview, Mr. Dupre expresses a wide range of delusional beliefs, touching on most aspects of his life history and experiences. In the interview, he quickly launched into a discussion of the Super Space Patrol, indicating that he has a Class 4 pilot's license with the Super Space Patrol and going on at some length about his rank. Mr. Dupre went on to express his belief that everybody has a rank and this is a central organizing principle around the world, end quote. Yeah, so a lot of uh, everything said there is not real. Right. Uh, wow. I love that it's called the Super Space Patrol, not just Space Patrol. We're not making fun of this guy's mental illness, just what he's saying is very bizarre. It's it's so bizarre. Um, there were other delusions as well, many including terrorism and secret government organizations and the denial his parents were his actual parents. Hmm. He also believed his actions were being recorded by satellites. Yeah, this is not a well individual. Gregory Dupre's mother reported that, quote, from 2004 onward, shut us all out, and that he became increasingly uncommunicative to both herself and her parents. She notes that he became increasingly irritable with others, especially his grandparents, with whom he had the most contact, and indicates that once he reported to her that when he smoked dope, he, quote, heard voices in his head. This is getting really fascinating. She went on to say that he'd become obsessed with anything military and began to dress in military-style clothing. Lots of camo. Mm -hmm. After three more days of hearings on April 26, 2007, Gregory Allen Dupre was determined unfit to stand trial, but seemed to be responding to the medication he was on now. Mm. His status would be reviewed regularly to determine whether he was ready to face another trial. Wow. Okay. But hearing these things makes um, things make a bit more sense in regards to his actions and whatnot. If you're not aware of reality, yeah. Uh, oh. On July 11, 2007, provincial mental health determined that thanks to the medication, Dupre was ready to go to trial. A new trial date was set for November 5, 2007. This time, Mr. Justice William T. Grant was overseeing the bench trial. The first day of the trial was spent mostly admitting the evidence from the first trial as presented by the prosecution. So they didn't have to go through all that evidence. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was very valuable. And, yeah, yeah. And like we mentioned, damning yeah. to uh, Mr. Dupre. On day two, a gruesome video of the crime scene was shown, highlighting the violent activity that was evident in the home. Observers in the court saw the bodies of Werner and Fred where they last lay, covered in blood and brutalized. Oh, that would be difficult to see. Yeah, especially there's your family. Yeah. Oh. Also on day two, Adolf Dupre, Gregory's grandfather, testified at the trial about what he'd seen happening to his grandson over the past few years. From court documents, here are some of the highlights of Adolf Dupre's responses when he was asked about Gregory talking to himself in the mirror on cross-examination. Hmm. 
The grammar has been kept as Mr. Depre shared it, so bear with us. Quote, Oh yes, he done that a lot. He done it upstairs in his room, like he would talk to himself. Two o'clock in the morning, I'd see me get up, and I'd go up in the stairway and holler to him. But I never mentioned his name, see. He didn't want me to call him by his name. So at the end of it, I give him a name, Junior. And he talked to himself, like, I'd say it's 2.30 in the morning, why not send your little buddy home? He was talking to somebody. I swear to God there was another person up there, and sometimes it was a woman that was talking upstairs. And that went on for a long time. He'd go in the bathroom and he'd talk to himself, but he stayed up there. He'd go at 8 in the morning, and he wouldn't come up until about 5 that night. We'd try hard to get him out of the bathroom, but he was talking to himself there in the mirror. So there's been a lot of bizarre behavior leading up to this. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Depre said it sounded like different voices, but when asked directly if Gregory Depre had been there alone the whole time, Adolf said, yep, there was nobody there. Wow. His grandparents would hear the voice of a woman for extended periods of time talking to Gregory. It kind of reminds me of uh, Norman Bates in Psycho mm. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. That character. Yeah. Or who's modeled after Ed Gein. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he must have, uh, you know, been playing many yeah. roles in his head. The defense went to work trying to prove that, in fact, Gregory Allen Dupre was mentally ill to the point where he was not criminally responsible for the murders of Fred Fulton and Veronica Verna de Carey. Gregory's bizarre behavior before the crime was brought up and talked about extensively. His behavior post-offense was interesting, too. Mm, I bet. Gregory Depre said he was, quote, a member of the NSA, an assassin, that his wife had been killed in California by the Ku Klux Klan, that he either didn't know her name or that her name was no name, and that he was, quote, active, meaning he was an active member of the military, he was not subject to civilian courts. Okay. He named a mysterious Captain Beck was going to arrive and take him to Kansas in a helicopter. Oh. Depre himself was not talking to anyone, though, about the murders of Fred and Verna. He was maintaining he'd been returning to the U.S. after completing a, quote, assassination mission. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's some insight. From court documents speaking to Gregory Depre's capacity to willfully commit the murder, Dr. Scott Terrio said, quote, If Mr. Depre, as the result of believing that he was in the military, believed that he was on a mission, and that mission involved the assassination of victims in this matter, then Mr. Depre could not be said to be able to appreciate the moral wrongfulness of his actions, in that he would have felt that his actions were sanctioned. It is my opinion that at the time of the killing of Fred Fulton and Verna de Carey, Mr. Depre was acting under such a belief, end quote. If that does make sense to me. Further on in the same document, another psychiatrist, Dr. Woodside, said, quote, In this case, I believe there is substantial evidence that this individual is suffering from a mental disorder, namely paranoid schizophrenia, which could have conceivably robbed him of the capacity to appreciate the nature and quality of his acts or omissions, or to know, the, know their wrongfulness. Mm -hmm. I believe that it is highly likely Mr. Depre was continuing to experience psychotic symptomology at the material time given observations of his behavior prior to the offenses and after. 
it would be extremely unlikely for his symptoms to have remitted at the time of the alleged offenses in the absence of his having received any treatment for them. And finally, overall, I do not believe that Mr. Depre would have known the wrongfulness of his actions at the material time due to his experiencing active symptoms of psychosis as already noted above, end quote. Oh, so I mean, typically for to be deemed criminally not responsible, um, you have to not know what you're doing is wrong. Uh, he clearly did, but yet it does make sense, though, that if in his mind the belief is he's on a mission, like this is a job and I can't, you know, like I have them doing it for the government, I can't be caught, you know. So that does kind of fit the narrative that's going on in his head. It yeah, it makes it not wrong to him to do those things. It, it, it's it's hired by the NSA has him doing this or the whomever the military. Like yeah, <sighs> it's such an interesting topic and conversation though too because it's it's the emotional side for most people want to not believe uh, and just think that he's just lying. Yeah, but to get uh, the court system to believe. That you're mentally... It's not uh, easy. It's not easy at all. Yeah. So, yeah, but I can't imagine how the families are feeling at this point. Well, that's the thing, yeah. You know, they're they're thinking, wait a minute, you know, this this guy might get away with murdering our parents. Yeah, and, and I, I, I couldn't help but feel that way if I were in their shoes. Yeah. You know, again, it's that emotional side of uh, a victimology that mm-hmm. it, it's very difficult to separate emotion and i like i couldn't i don't think i'd be able to i would be wanting this person to pay Mm -hmm. and okay so he had also been charged for that other crime but he was about to be sentenced for that and you know was he insane at the at that point too good question was this a revenge thing yeah you know yeah because the timeline adds up to hey he's about to be sentenced on the day before the bodies are found yeah yep the day before the actual sentencing is to take place, he kills these people and then takes off to the U.S. Which is way too coincidental, that it can't be coincidental. Right. But, yeah. yeah so, the, is was it the stress of that coupled with his disorder? I, I'm going to say in my limited knowledge that most likely, yeah, most likely the stress has him, like... Uh, panicking and freaking out and they're like oh what you know what though like i actually think this is why all that happened is because they're working mm-hmm. with the you know the russians or who you know right. like <sighs> in the end justice grant said that gregory allen Depre was in fact guilty of the murders of fred and verna de Carey, but the family and friends of the victims were disappointed by what followed mm. from justice grant's decision quote when I consider the totality of the evidence relating to the extent of Mr. Depre's incapacity, I am satisfied on a balance of probabilities that he, quote, lacked the capacity to decide whether his actions were, quote, right or wrong, and hence to make a rational choice about whether to do them or not. Yep. I therefore find that the defense has proven on a balance of probabilities that when he committed the murders of Fred Fulton and Veronica DeCary, Gregory Allen Depre was suffering from a disease of the mind that prevented him from knowing his actions were wrong. Pursuant to section 672.34 of the Criminal Code, 
I therefore find Gregory Allen Dupre committed the murders of Fred Fulton and Verona DeCary as alleged in the indictment, but that he is not criminally responsible on the account of mental disorder. Signed, William Grant, Justice of the Court of Queen's Bench, end quote. Yeah, I, I completely get that. I, I get his ruling. Because, yeah, I just, I just have, oh, I have this weird feeling about the timing. No, without a doubt, that casts a huge question mark. Mm-hmm. But, uh, again, to have multiple uh, psychiatrists, yeah. um, doctors, uh, to assess and then determine that he wasn't, that he was suffering, that he's mentally ill mm-hmm. and couldn't distinguish uh, that what he was doing was wrong, yeah. uh, that it's not an easy thing to do. It's really, it really isn't. And so uh, I have to put weight there, but. Uh, you have to put weight there, but here's the thing. He has not, even to this day, spoken about what happened. You can't say, in my mind, uh, I I kind of agree with the families. It's like, well, wait a minute. Like he's never talked about this. Yeah. How can you say he he knew whether or not what he was doing was wrong when we've when he's never even discussed it? Yeah. You know, it's not come up. So here we go. Gregory Allen Dupre was sent to Shepherdy Healing Center, a facility for forensic psychiatry attached to. Dorchester Penitentiary in New Brunswick. Yeah. There are hearings uh, at either 12 or 24-month intervals that the Fulton and DeCary families attend regularly, uh, obviously feeling re-victimized over and over and Mm -hmm. having to give victim impact statements and stress over the possible release of this man who they continue to fear. Even though staff feels that Gregory Allen Dupre is easy to care for, he still refuses to talk about what happened at 358 Slope Road. From a CBC article, Terrio said, this is the psychiatrist, said even after 10 years, quote, he's the only patient who refused systematically to discuss these issues. Wow. Wow. So this guy has seen a lot of people yeah. over the years, and Dupre is the only one who's refused to talk about this stuff. Oh, wow. There's more. Also from the CBC article, Dupre himself spoke, quote, As far as being guilty of murder, I'm still not guilty, Dupre said. And so he was asked, You're saying, if I understand you, you say you didn't commit these offenses, one of the board members asked. Yes, sir, he replied. End oh. quote. So he's denying still that he did it. Yeah. Oh. Like, was he that psychotic that he doesn't remember the event? Or was he hallucinating at the time that he was doing something different? I don't know, but he's if he's not, something's something's stinks in the state of Denmark. Yeah, it, I mean, you could say that if in his head, in the mentally ill, schizophrenic head, that he disassociated himself from it, or he completely still subscribes to the theory that I did this for the government and I can't speak about it, so I have to say I didn't do it. But if he, if that's what he's saying, then there's no way he will get out because um, that means he's still suffering. He is still mentally ill because he would have to be at a point where he is saying, I now see what I did was wrong. We've seen other cases mm-hmm. like this where the person, once treatment has 
set in and they're taking the proper medications and they're doing the things they're supposed to do, they end up extremely remorseful and apologetic and, and recognizing what they've done. But you're not seeing that with this guy. No. Not he yeah, not not in the least. No. This is where it kinda stinks for me. It's like, hmm, something's up. Like if he's not willing to participate, why is he the only one who's never really wanted to participate? What does he have to gain by not participating? Well, again, the the plus side of that is if he's not willing to do these things and he's not willing to accept what he's done, he won't get out. Yeah. You know, he will be, uh, th that's the thing people think that you go to the um, uh, mental health facility, whatever you want to call it, instead of jail, that you go there and a year later you're out. There is no end to when you're there. There's no set date of like, you know, you're, you're sentenced to 10 years. Like you're there until proven, then until you can prove yeah. that you are uh, well enough to be in the community again. Yeah. So if you're not willing to accept and, and acknowledge what's happened and talk about it, you're not well enough. And so that the plus side is he'll never get out if this is, if he continues this path. Yeah. They pray said he knows he's sick and he needs medication, but he doesn't quite understand his disease. And Mary Kennedy Fulton, Fred's daughter-in-law, told CBC the reasons behind the family showing up at every hearing. Quote, we're trying to honor Papa and Verna's memory and to let people continue to be safe and for the issues that are there to be presented every time, that people never forget how wonderful they were as people, that they were taken from us and our family will never be the same, end quote. Yeah, yes, Mary. And, you know, and thank God that they're doing that. Thank God that they are showing up every time and and speaking on behalf of the family and what damage was done. It's the way the family has to be involved. Oh, is what's fuck. terrible. Yes, like I. It, that's it, that's not. I'm not concerned about the hearings. And absolutely, they have to happen, but it's the way they happen that sucks for these poor people who have been through these brutal crime. Yeah, I just don't know if there's another way. But I agree with you. I couldn't imagine you've lost your loved ones. You've lost your loved ones. You want to try to heal and move forward and to have to continually, yearly or bi-yearly, mm -hmm. go and... Even if the family and, does heal, yep. you know, like even if they are, they are healing or doing whatever they need to do to get by this, it doesn't change the fact that two people are gone. Yeah, and um, you're continually having to re-experience it by going yeah. to these hearings and re-dredge it up and you know take the time like for sure it's it's a really shitty experience to have to be continually re-victimized yeah uh, it's certainly not a, a victim friendly process no I I can't think I I'm not aware and I can't think of any other alternatives. No. But I mean but we're not, we're not just, the people to answer that question. No, no. But, but but it's still like it is not it is not a fair experience for the victims for sure. No, for and, sure. And this is what we've seen over and over and over again. Yeah. And we hear the victims saying this over and over and over again. Why doesn't the Canadian government have a, like a, a look at this? Yeah. Maybe there's time for a review of these processes and let's change them. Like, put, put your money where your mouth is. Hey, you know what? There's an election coming up. One of these parties could hop on that and make a big difference. Hey, NDP, 
you're running way behind, folks. Mm-hmm. You guys are like lagging way behind. How about you fix that shit, and then people will will vote for you? Sadly, how about, how about that? Sadly, I just don't think there would be enough traction behind it for them to get enough people. Like, there wouldn't be enough people like, yeah, well, that's, that's right, something. I want to vote. It, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. But I, I don't see any any party giving a shit about it. Sadly, but it, 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 there well, has enough, to be. A, if there, enough people yell about it, then if for sure, for sure, uh, there has to be a better way. There has to be. Do I know it? No, but there has to be. Yes, but there are minds greater than ours that could get together, be paid to think about it, and come up with a a situation that would. These people are already have PTSD. Yep. The one daughter has to walk in and see her dad has been decapitated. Oh fuck yeah! So, you know. Yep. Anyway. Yeah, it's such a uh, a difficult scenario in every capacity. But so my heart, my heart is always with the victims that's where my priorities typically lie is with the victims i can empathize in some cases with the uh, criminal the killer i can empathize in understanding why things happened but uh, my heart and care is always prioritized towards the victims yeah for sure <sighs> yeah he's frustrating it really is and we're just podcast hosts imagine being the victims yeah imagine being the face we're we're this worked up and we're just like two dudes with microphones we we can we can be a voice we can oh absolutely it's good that it's good that we are here and speaking uh our our thoughts but um i just mean like emotion wise we're this worked up and we're just dudes with mics well Uh, imagine the family yep enough of this blather we're not going to help anybody with this Let's get on with the Patreon shoutouts. So Kyle Andrew Mooney mm. is a new PM. What? Yeah. And he didn't, so what, he's been a uh, a supporter for a while. So yeah. he was a, a, a $1 patron before, and now yeah. he's upped his pledge to 25 bucks. Oh, Kyle. Kyle, you're awesome. Whoa. But now your address and stuff isn't there. So please send it to us so I can put it into the our database. So. We know where to send you stickers and stuff. Yeah, Kyle, that is so dope of you. Yeah. Hugs, buddy. Thank you, sir. Brandon French from uh, Norwich, New York. Thank you for your pledge. Oh, thank you, Brandon. Sophie Benoit Viber from St. Thomas, Ontario. Oh, Uh, Sophie, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Marianne Murphy from Providence, Rhode Island. I got really drunk there with uh, (laughs) with my martial arts uh, grandmaster. Uh, Daniel K. Pye, and uh, we ate at an Italian restaurant, and I met a mobster. Wow! What? Yeah. That, there's there's a lot to unpack in that I story. Know. That was an interesting interesting weekend. Yeah. Uh, Kate Foss from Quincy, Massachusetts. Great show, by the way. Quincy, yes. Amy Lomelli from Beaverton, Oregon. Thank you, Amy. Melanie Gessy from Leduc, Alberta. Alberta. Thank you, Melanie. And we have another PM. Oh, what? Two in one week? Isn't this bonkers? Bonkers. Victor Ashton from High Level, Alberta. Victor. I'm wondering if he is related to my mother's ex. I don't know. <laughs> sure. Well, her last name is Ashton, so wow. that's interesting. Victor. I, what, how, so what? Victor may be a relative uh, in some way. Uh, is there like is there a lower level Alberta? <sighs> Always with this. Well, I mean, you have to wonder. 
Well, yeah, you do. You do. Scott does anyway. Uh, constantly. Uh, <laughs> Mathieu Rodrigue from uh, Rouen, Noranda, Quebec. Wow. Look at me trying on my uh, Quebecois accent to pronounce the things correctly. And I will even say it for you this once. Poutine. Whoa, my. I know I feel how like to pronounce just... the word, but I'm an Englishman and I pronounce it poutine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm. It must have taken a lot for you to just pronounce it. You did it twice. Look at that! Oh my God, Christine Modsley from Edmonton, Alberta. Oh, Christine, thank you. Lots of supporters in in Alberta, yeah. especially in Edmonton. We love you guys. Thank you so much, Marissa Sapizinski. I think you did well there. I think I did well. I think you did well. And she's from Cookstown. Thank New you, Marissa. Jersey. Yeah, Sarah Miller. Thank you for having an easy name to pronounce. <laughs> And she's from Bend, Oregon. I've been through there, and actually, that's very close to that uh, Patterson-Gimlin film, the famous Bigfoot oh, sightings. Oh, okay. Bend, Oregon. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Trish Covet? I don't know where Trish is from, but she covets things, apparently. She, she does. She does. Or it could be Covey. No, it's Covet. Is it Covet? Yeah, it's Covet, yep. Like one of the seven deadlies or whatever. I know that's not a covet. I don't think that's a covet. This is not a seven deadly. No. It, I just watched that movie the other day. Yeah, it's not. So what does she covet, Scott? What doesn't she covet? Uh, it runs the gamut. But typically what she covets most are duvet covers. Oh. Yeah. Which is, you know, hey, go for it. I enjoy a good duvet cover. Duvet covers are nice. They, I enjoy. They're, they're, I want one with skulls on it. Do you? Yeah. I shouldn't be that hard to find. There is one that I was looking at in the Amazon. That's why it was on my mind. Trish, with your expertise, help Mike find a skull duvet cover. So where is she from? Oh, oh, she is not from a high-level Alberta. Okay. She's not. She is from, uh, oh, God, it's one of those hard to pronounce. Um, Quackenberg? Wow, no, but there's a Quackenberg? Yeah. Damn, as there should be. Uh, it, it, Chattanooga? Uh, no, no, it's it's not on. It's in Africa. I'm trying to remember. Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe. Carol, Carol has been to Zimbabwe has numerous she? times. Yeah, has she? That is fantastic. What does Trish, besides coveting things, what does Trish do in Zimbabwe? Oh, she is a pa road paver. She paves roads. I don't think there are many paved roads in Zimbabwe. Well, now thus you see the employment opportunities that because sense. that means there's a lot of, of opportunity. To pave. To pave roads. And, and so that she's just capitalizing on that. Well, good for her. She really is. Really is. And she's doing, like, it's good work. And these, the Zimbabwe needs these roads. Well, I guess they do. Yeah. Who doesn't need a well-paved road? Well, Get people, Trish on people it. who don't have a car, like, if you don't have a car, you kind of don't need a paved you road. You still want to walk on something nicely paved, don't you? Not necessarily. Carol said that uh, she would see um, the young Zimbabwean men especially men running everywhere they would they would run and that's why they become uh there are so many um long distance triathletes runners. and yeah. stuff well yeah. especially marathon runners yep. from uh from african countries because a lot of people run everywhere they go yep so they get a lot of good practice sure Sure, but that's so. That's her story. That's her story. That's her and story. She's sticking with it, and then she'll be she'll be more than happy to to share with you her experiences as a Zimbabwe road paver. Well, I doubt that Zimbabwean, a Zimbabwean road paver. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You get it. Lastly, uh, as far as Patreon goes, we have Christine Johnson from Winnipeg, 
Manitoba. Winnipeg. Thank you, Christine. And somebody asked me, Mike, why don't you do any stories from Manitoba? And I went through our back catalog, and I did only find one Uh-oh. that we did directly about Manitoba. We mentioned Manitoba in a couple yeah. more, but there was only one, and that's the Falcon Lake incident that mm-hmm. we've done in mm-hmm. Manitoba. So Manitoba, Manitobans, we promise we will cover some Manitoba stories yeah, coming I, up. I had Because there's a lot yeah. of good ones. I've avoided a few because other people were telling yeah, me. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, so I've avoided a few of those, but um, I think it may be time to hear our take on some of those. Yeah. But those, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I haven't told a lot. There were a few that were uh, in the in the pipe, but... I don't want to tell it if somebody else has told it within like six months. Yeah, but we do we do have a different spin on things and and, yeah. and cover things differently. So yeah, it, you know it might be the might be the time that we do. And a lot of these uh, new uh, Patreon subscribers are coming in in the five dollar mark. So five and above, you get to hear our our often profound, deep. And insightful after show topics. Is that what you call it? Yeah. And the, like, they are life changing, the things, the topics that we cover mm. and the amount of preparation we put into it. Well, actually, we, we have been putting more prep into it, but it's About not like a regular minutes, so. show. So don't, don't go expecting to hear another episode of Dark Poutine. It's more like Scott and I just being idiots. Yep. So if you want to hear us <laughs> be buffoons and do our buffoonery. Yeah. Yeah. You We're just, very good at it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it just uh, I do think they're quite entertaining and hilarious. Social, so if you come in at the five dollar mark, you get the and I think there's what 60, 50, 60 uh, episodes on the after show. Yeah, there's over fifty now. Yeah, so you can you know if you need more poutine, get in there. Definitely, um, we did have some donut money this week. I know, right? Uh, Tara Tedford. Oh, she sent us some donut money Thank with you. a message. She said, absolutely loving dark poutine, captivating at all times, sincere and empathetic when needed and funny when appropriate. Thanks for all you, thank you for all you do, Tara Smart. Oh, thank you, Tara. That actually is quite, uh, that's what we're shooting for. So it's uh, wonderful to hear. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. We, we actually have achieved what we were yeah. <laughs> trying to achieve. And uh, we did get some more from somebody in the UK and her oh. name is Kate Bolsover. And she didn't send us any note or anything, but thank you. Thank you, for Kate. For the cash. Thank Much you, appreciate so. it. It's my mom's name, so thank you, Kate. Kate. Thanks so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show, as well, the folks who send us donut money. We are so happy <laughs> that we get uh, any support at all, really. Yeah, yeah. If you want to help support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash or for one-time support, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. People have even sent us like interact emails with cash. Too. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, wow. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to, sh- to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Uh, we don't have any voicemails this week. We do have Ooh. stuff. Well, you know, whatever. Uh, check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes or for other cool stuff. stuff. And the uh, phone number for Four. the show. The voicemail. Yeah, because then you could call us. We love it. And we, and love- we will play them. Yep. 
If you want to get famous or infamous, this is how you do it. Please give us a follow or a like on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful, powerful thing. And we do have a promo this week. Oh, sweet. And the promo is from our friend Eve Lazarus. Oh, yes. A, now, you, you a know, local author and host herself. That is correct. And so her um, podcast is Blood, Sweat, and Fear. Mm-hmm. And she is a very cool person. So yes. you should listen to her podcast. She's got, uh, she's the one who wrote the book, Murder by Milkshake. Yeah, by topic we covered earlier. Uh, we, we covered it before her book came out, actually, yeah. which was interesting. I would have loved to have had her book uh, to go from, but uh, evelazarus.com or her podcast is evelazarus.com category slash podcasts. So pretty easy to find, but let's listen to Eve and her promo. Let's do that. I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada, and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934 there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean, or your favorite podcatcher. So that's right up the dark poutine alley for sure. That sounds like a wicked show. Doesn't it? Yeah, seriously. So just so you folks know, uh, not this week, but next, well, I guess it'll be this week. This The week that this show drops on Saturday, I will be going to visit Eve Lazarus, and I may or may not pick up a couple of signed copies Ooh. of her book, Murder by Milkshake that we will be giving away Sweet. in a future episode. Oh, that's awesome. And also, Eve and I uh, have been doing some chitty chatting, and we're planning an episode together about some of her unsolved Vancouver crimes that she's covered in her book. Oh my God, yes. Yeah, so it should be a blast. We've got a lot of stuff coming up. Uh, so until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Chowder mouters. What's a mouter? Yeah, it's part of chowder. <laughs>